Thanks, Keith, for uh, reading those first eight verses of Psalm 78. As he mentioned, this really is a, um, a key passage of Scripture uh, talking about the need for us to invest in future generations. But if you're like me, you probably are a little confused as to what generation you are. Have you ever wondered about that? You know, there's generation Y right now that tends to be the, the generation that's in college and maybe even in seminary and entering the workforce. There's generation X. There's uh, also called the millennium generation, which is also generation Y. And there's generation Z and generation C. And there's the boomers and there's the busters. And then there's the... You guys confused with all that? I was confused with all that until I figured out how to understand that. So just kind of join with me. This is how you know what generation you are from. There are basically two questions that you ask to determine what generation you're from. What is the kernel of common experience for that generation? And the second question is this. To what do or does that generation aspire? What are they looking up to? So. This is going to be helpful for you. This is going to be really, really important for you to remember. It's an easy way to do it, okay? If you were born um, between 1925 and 1942, you are the silent generation. And you are known because you know what this thing is. What is that? It's a radio. That's right. All right? You grew up listening to a radio. That's what happened. All right. The next generation are the boomers. And the boomers uh, were basically from 1943 to 1960. And they are known because of this. See? Records. Guys, remember records? Some of you here don't know what a vinyl record is. They used to come as LPs, 78s, right? And if you had a single song, it was a 45 takes me back a long time back to those days I used to have some demo records and those were like special they had they had special value to them they had a white label it's called and they were known as white labels because they were sent out as demos to the various um, you know various uh, um, radio stations and stuff so I kept the hold of those um, but I wasn't a boomer I was actually a Gen X 1960 to 1981. We were the ones that went around with Sony Walkmans. We had the cassette tapes. Now, if you knew me when I was in college, and as a young adult, even as a young married, you would know that I was a Gen X based on this illustration, because when you stepped foot into my car, the floor was crunchy. It wasn't crunchy because of you know, nuts or McDonald's stuff. It was crunchy because I had old cassette covers that were just kind of on the floor that, you know, had fallen and broken. And so I had cassettes all around through my car. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. I should go back and say the boomers also would include, um, this is very much an American thing, but you could put in there eight tracks. That would be kind of toward the end of it, just in case you were concerned that you were being left out. Um, okay. Very much an American phenomenon. I didn't know what an eight track was until I came to the States. All right. And uh, isn't this helpful for you? You know what your era is, right? Then we have the Generation Y. And they really are the generation where CDs came in, MP3s kicked in. Really at the end of it is when, um, you know, the, uh, um, the, the iPad, not the iPad, but the, uh, what's that thing called? Uh, 
iPod, there you go. I get all my eyes mixed up here. Um, all right, but it started out with CDs. So if you kind of grew up in the CD era and you know the MP3 area, which ultimately ended up with the iPod, you're part of the generation Y. You are part of the culture today that is in college and is in the workforce. This is the, the stuff that you grew up with, all right? Then we have the next generation, uh, which is called a number of things. Generation Z, Generation C is some debate as to what it is. Um, but they are known as the generation who basically have stepped further forward and they are in the internet. Um, they, are, they are connecting in that particular arena. Their field is, is more carrying stuff that takes you right into this world of interaction. Um, and it's more a, a sharing even of music. Now you say, what's all that having to do? Because our culture, and our American culture in particular, does look at these generations as certain periods of time um, where certain things were true. And it's interesting that this is, these are some of the, uh, the circumstances behind uh, these particular generations. Now I only share that with you just to kind of help you gauge where you are. But where are the generations to come going to fit in? What's the next technology that's going to kick in? What's the next thing that they're going to be known for that's going to fuel them, that's going to be um, how they are described? Um, it's interesting, you go to different cultures and you'll find that, that uh, they view, you might want to say generations, or they even view youth differently. By the way, did you know you won't find youth ministry talked about in the Bible? You won't, you know, show me a chapter and verse that says, this is how you are to do youth ministry. You're not going to find that. What you find are instructions to youth, and you have instructions to certain generations or groups, right? Our culture, our American culture, is very much a youth ministry culture. You know, we have the juniors up through sixth grade or fifth grade. We have junior hires, then we have high school, then we have college, then we have career. and We've broken it up all these different ways. I go to Russia, I remember when I, I took associate pastor Matt Blevins with me to Russia and we're trying to help these people understand the concept of youth ministry and they, they really had very little concept of what youth ministry was all about. They didn't see them the way we see them in our American paradigms. In fact, if you're a part of the Latin culture, youth ministry is called hovenus. And it can go from age 12 till age 35, depending on if you're married or not, right? It's, it's a completely different paradigm. It's a completely different way of viewing culture and viewing ages and generations. So what's important for us to understand here is more what, does, <clears throat> what, what does this next generation look like and ultimately uh, what does God in his word say about this next generation. So who is this next generation? Um, how does scripture describe it? Uh, if you go to the book of Matthew, you don't turn there, but in the genealogies, it talks about there are three sections of 14 generations. There's the generation um, from Abraham to David. Then there's the generation from David to Babylon. There's the generation from Babylon to Christ, each of them being 14 generations. And so, you know, mathematicians have added up, you know, what they estimate Abraham to Christ would be, and they've come up with 2,160 years you divide that by 42, you get in the math here, 14 plus 14 plus 14, and you come up with a generation is 51 years. Okay, that's one way to look at it. Other times, generation is understood from the perspective of 100 years. Sometimes it's from a perspective of 70 years. It's also based on circumstances. You see where the 70 years comes in the history of Israel. 
Sometimes it's even referred to as 40 years. Um, but I think when we're talking about what, what the next generation is for us, we're thinking more about what would be described um, in a dictionary. Dictionary.com says this. It tells us that the word generation is a term of years, roughly an estimate of 30 years or so. Or maybe a little shorter than that. It's basically the next generation. So if you are getting married, you're getting married, let's say, in your 20s, and you're having children, how long does it take from your birth to the birth of that child? That's a generation. So anywhere from 25 to 30 years probably is a good estimate. Okay? Not that that has to be hard and fast, but we're seeing the target of the next generation. God has given us a responsibility for the next generation. Now, is God concerned about the next generation? What's the answer to that? We all know the answer is yes, but I would like for us to look at this verse of Scripture, Deuteronomy 32.7. God is saying this, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. Remember them. Consider them. God wants future generations to be connected to past generations, right? That is very important to him. Now, a little side note here. In our culture, many times people are not concerned about the past. They're just concerned about the future. Because there is this kind of elitist mindset that says we have so much information, so much technology, we've risen to such a level that the past really is not that helpful for us What's most important right now is the future. So don't tell me about what someone did in the past. What are we doing in the future? Well, the message of Scripture speaks a different story. The message of Scripture says the past is important because a grasp of the past helps future generations to be what God's called them to be. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Turn, if you would, please, to Joshua chapter 2. Uh, I don't have it up on the screen um, Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It says this, And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Sorry, Judges chapter 2, that's what it should be. Woo, Judges, you guys are wondering and worrying there for a minute. All right, that would be Judges chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So here we have, here we have you know, Joshua passing away. And yet, as soon as, you know, just, just soon after that, what happens to the nation? What happens to the people? Without this, this leader that held them together, they begin to abandon the things of God, and they begin to do the things that God has said, don't do. And of course, you remember in the rest of the story of the book of Judges, what are called the sin cycles, right? There's seven sin cycles where God's people... You know, rather than honor God, they begin to flirt with other, other peoples and they begin to intermarry and they begin to worship their gods. And before long, those people were oppressing the children of God. 
And then the children of God, after years of oppression, cried out to God for deliverance. And what did God do? In his time, he brought a deliverer. And that deliverer delivered those people from the bondage that they were in. And the people were turned back to God. They began to follow his ways. They began to worship him again. And as they worshiped him over time, they began to flirt once again with the people around them. And same cycle over and over and over and over again. And the book of Judges is there to help present generations and future generations see that, that uh, it is so easy to slip away and, and abandon your faith in God, even though you are called God's children. Now, I want you to, to notice a couple of things. How does God counsel us is the question that's next. How does he counsel us to invest in the next generation? He doesn't say in Scripture, study the next generation. Survey the next generation. Interview the next generation to see what they need, to see what they want, to see what will complete them. That's not what he says. What he says is far more profound. It is easier to grasp than any of that stuff. And it is relevant to every generation. Again, our present culture seems too sophisticated to embrace the simplicity of what God has revealed in his word for every generation. But aren't you thankful that God is very simple and clear to reveal for us what really is important for every generation? So we're kind of really just kind of doing a broad swoop of introducing the topic here this morning. And most of our time is going to be spent answering this question. Is God concerned about the next generation? Yes. How then does he counsel us uh, regarding the next generation? This is where we go to chapter 78 of the Psalms. And uh, let's just read once, once more the first few verses here. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, listen. Listen to what I have to say. Hear what is about to come out of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. By the way, you know, the, the parenting idea of, you know, I'm not going to influence my children as to maybe who they're going to worship and how they're going to live. I just want them to kind of, you know, grow up in life like a flower and be, be fashioned and shaped by society and make their own decisions. It goes contrary to what Scripture says here. What Scripture says here is we will not hide them from, our children, from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. I mean, these are the things that should be coming out of our mouth. This is what he says he is going to be doing. And this psalm basically can be broken up into three sections. The first eight verses is really instruction. From verses um, 9 to 64, really there's just an example of why teaching the next generation is important. Sadly, it's a negative example. And then from uh, verse 65 and following, God shows us how he blesses a particular tribe that are part of his people. Not the tribe that you would have thought of, but the tribe that he has chosen to bless. And ultimately he has chosen to bless Judah and he's chosen to bless David. Okay, Now, all that being said, 
let us now jump into really, I think, three um, kind of sections of verses 1 through 8, in particular 5 through 8, that are going to help us to see what is it that God has called us to. Okay? So let's, uh, let's move now to what I'm calling God's plan. All right? God's plan. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. This is what God has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. You know, Jacob and Israel are the same thing, right? I mean, so this is parallelism. But there is this testimony and there is this law. And, you know, if you read uh, Psalm 19 or Psalm, Psalm 119, you get all these different words that are all talking about the word of God and the precepts of God and the testimonies of God. Are you with me there? And sometimes, you know, they are synonyms, but even though they're synonyms, they do have some nuances I think that are helpful for us to see. And I think that's what is at stake here, because in verse 4, we've gotten some revelation here. We'll not hide them from our, our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, His might, and the wonders He has done. So there's some revelation there as to the kind of things He's talking about. So let's look first of all then at what I'm calling a testimony, or what the Scripture here calls a testimony, and let's think through that. A testimony is what we learn about God and His character. When you talk about, hey, share your testimony, what are you saying? I want to hear your story. I want to hear about what happened in your life. So here's, here's the, the kind of idea. In recalling the stories of history, in particular biblical history, God is showing who he is and what he has done. Right? So you can read the story of David, and it's nice, the story about David, and he had five stones and a sling, and he killed Goliath. But that story ultimately is about who? It's about God. And God is revealing himself. He's revealing some things about him. He's living out his resume for all of us to see. Right? He's also showing us his track record. Over and over and over and over again, we see God revealed. God's character um, shown to us in the pages of Scripture. He's demonstrated himself to be powerful, to be dependable, to be trustworthy, to be serious about sin, to be gracious, to be slow to anger, faithful, all-knowing, everywhere, all-powerful, compassionate, sovereign. And we can go on and on and on, screaming from the pages of history, in particular through the narrative sections where he is dealing with mankind. We get a picture of who he is and what he has done. It's all his character that is his testimony. It is his reputation. So God throughout his dealings with Israel, was in the business of establishing his testimony for our behalf and for the benefit of each succeeding generation. Now here's the bottom line. God is saying to us, listen, I want you to teach your children and the next generation about the character of God. Okay? That's the testimony part. Now, the law part. All right? The law would coincide with the commandments that are revealed in Scripture, right? God specifically says, do this, don't do this. And we usually think of that as, you know, the content of Scripture, the standard of Scripture, God's revealed truth, um, His law, right? They contradict man's a la carte 
perspective and view of Christianity, right? This is so common today, isn't it? You know, God, I, I want to follow you, but I'll take this part of what you say, and I'll take this part of what you say, and I'll take this part of what you say, but I don't want the other parts. Now, you've probably heard this, and what I'm about to say sounds good, but it's not complete. Here's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Someone might say, I want a loving God who forgives me of my sin and accepts me for who I am. Is that true? You say, I don't know how to answer that one now. I'm not trying to bait you. Is it true that we have a God that is loving? Does he forgive? Is there a sense that he accepts us for who we are? Yes. But is that the whole truth? Absolutely not. But isn't that the message you hear out there, right? Just turn the radio on. AM, round the eight somethings, right? Positive, encouraging. We just want to know that God loves us, that he forgives us, and he accepts us for who we are. But maybe who we are is actually an offense to God because we are sinful creatures. And how can you be forgiven if you don't acknowledge who you are? If you're just being accepted for who you are, where does forgiveness come from? What's the point of it? Right? You're with me. So we've got to wrestle with this kind of stuff. His commandments are a tsunami against such pick-and-choose thinking. They reveal that everything we do will be judged and evaluated. And the measuring stick of that evaluation is his law. Listen, mankind can live how he wants. He can choose to act and think and behave however he wants. But at the end of the day, everyone is going to come and stand and be measured by his law. Right? And so, the psalmist here, Asaph here, is saying, listen, you teach your children in the next generation the testimonies the character of God. You teach those children the law, the statutes, the, the commandments of God. Those should be what you're focusing on. This is what they ultimately need. And that's why God takes, um, takes Joshua after Moses dies to affirm a reality. If you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. You know the passage, I'm sure. Remember, Moses has died. Joshua assumes the mantle of leadership. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. And here's ultimately what God is saying to Joshua. Joshua, just because a leader has died doesn't mean that I change. Just because my leader is changing doesn't mean that I change. My character is the same. My truth is the same. And so that's why he says, just as I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The focus here is on the Word of God being that food and that nourishment and that direction, and that counsel for Him and ultimately the future generations. 
So the takeaway principle here for us as we're talking about the next generation is this. Just because generations change doesn't mean that God changes, right? The generation that sat around and listened to a radio needed to know the character of God and the commandments of God. The generation that walked around with you know, earbuds in their ears and, and listening to iTunes or whatever, they need to know the same thing. And for us to say, well, this new generation is going to be full of knowledge, they're going to be so sophisticated, they need something more, they need something else, goes against the understanding and the revelation of God's Word. They need the same realities. They need to know that God is worthy to be praised of, because of who He is and what He has done, and His commandments are there to be a help and a guide and a counsel to us, but we will be measured and truly, biblically, properly judged by those commandments. That is good counsel to the next generation. Now, let's move on. And think through. This is God's plan. What's his process? You already know where this is going. It says, He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. So that's their children. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children. Fathers, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. You probably heard the expression, you know, um, you know, this, this, this judgment that God says is going to go to the third and fourth generation. You've heard that somewhere in Scripture, right? That whole idea of the third and fourth generation. This is what we're looking at here. He's speaking now and saying, listen, this is what you need to be doing. And you know who your children are, but you have no idea who your grandchildren are. And you have no clue who your great-grandchildren are. Anyone here know who your great-great-great-grandchildren are? It is a future generation that you are not aware of yet. But it is still your responsibility to lay a legacy to affect that future generation. We have that responsibility as individuals, as parents, but we also have a, a responsibility as a church. So as we look at the subject of the next generation, as we think about the church, we need to have, I want to say, a split vision about what we do. So as I preach and as I teach or as you are maybe teaching in a context or you as parents, you're, you're, you're speaking to the new gen generation, the now generation, the ones that are right before us, the ones that are with us right now, but we're also speaking to a generation we cannot see and we don't even know. And what we do now will affect that generation. That's ultimately what he's saying here. There's a process. Fathers teach their children, and those children teach their children, and those children teach their children. There's a need for that. And again, this is not new to us, but this is important for us to understand that this is truly God's process. Now, it's true. Each generation will have different struggles, values, and ideals, don't they? I mean, when you study it, maybe when say a, a, a generation Y group of people, they are thinking through life a little differently. They are kind of entertaining ideals that might be new. You know, we, we hear a lot of the, you know, the postmodern thinking. Postmodern thinking is a reality. It is out there. But that doesn't mean that God's solutions and God's answers change because there's postmodern thinking. Now, it's important for us to identify those things and evaluate those things so that we can maybe be a little bit more skillful to present the truth of God's Word 
But those should not be the tail that wagged the dog. Right? We've got to be careful about that because God's truth transcends every generation. So what we need to be doing is preaching, teaching, modeling the character and the commandments of God, His testimonies, His law. Ultimately, it will all come down to the same issue. Will we recognize Him for who He is? Will we humble ourselves before Him and be obedient to His will? And the pressure is on us as parents and as a church to impart this teaching. Someone has said, um, if you want to leave footprints in the sands of time, you'll have to wear work boots. In other words, you just don't walk lightly through life. You walk with firm, hard-pressed feet and make an impact. The boots have an heavy, a heavy impact of, uh, of your life on the next generation. So the question is this, what difference are we making what do we want the next generation to look like? How will we impact that next generation? Now, let's move on to the next thing, and that would be God's product, all right? Verse 7. Here's the so that. When you see the so that in the sentence, this is the goal, this is the ultimate place you want to be that everything's driving toward, right? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And then verse 8 also um, kicks in here and there's four outcomes that I see in verses 7 and 8. And I think you'll see, you'll see this too. And it's right there revealed for us. The first one is this. A sense of confidence. But a sense of confidence in the character of God. It says here that they should set their hope in God. Now the question I have for you is, is your hope rooted in God? <laughs> That's where God wants us to be. We can't teach our children and the next generation if we are not recognizing that God is the one who is sufficient and He is the one that we should find our satisfaction in and that we should find our hope in. We need to understand that. But the next generation, ultimately, what you want to do is to impact them in such a way so that when they you know, fly out of the nest and they are doing their own thing, they have a certainty in their heart, they have a confidence in their heart about who God is. That He doesn't change. That He knows what has taken place. That He is forgiving and that He is compassionate. That He is a God of wrath and that He, he sees people's sin and He sees their sin. But there is restoration through the gospel. And even as children of God, they understand that they need that gospel day after day after day. And so this is all rooted in the confidence in the character of God. Life is all about Him and what He is doing. Secondly, it's a sense of the providence of God. Notice what the verse says. It says here that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Not forgetting the works of God is, is another way of saying they are seeing God's providence in His work in accomplishing His purposes. Don't you want the next generation to see that this happened and this happened and this happened because it was all part of God's providence. It was all part of His plan. When you're going through that trial, when you're going through that difficulty, when you're struggling, but you're making decisions that are rooted in hope, and God carries you through, and your children are there with you, and they're seeing you trust in God, guess what? 
They're recognizing that God's providence is something to be valued, right? And so you want that future generation to understand that everything that has taken place in their life, whether it's a, a D on a test, whether it's a, a job that they get um, relieved from, or whether it's a, a school they attend, or maybe it's a disaster, or maybe it's some kind of a, a relationship, God, through all of those things, is providentially working His plan for His purpose, for our good. And if the next generation can grasp that, they are in a good place based on what this psalmist is saying. Here's the third thing. A desire for obedience to the commands of God. It says here, um, they set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. That they, that the idea here is that they, they value His commandments. They're paying attention to His commandments. They're important to, him, to them. That they, they want to keep them. They want to obey those commandments. They have a love for God's word. They love discovering more about God. They want to see what God says be fleshed out in their lives. Now this is where we want to be. The, the last part here is this. It's, it's verse 8. And notice what it says here. And that they should not be like their fathers, <laughs> a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so I put it this way. A sensitivity towards sin. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. Uh, we're, Psalm 78. We're just going to highlight this, this psalm and what's going through and the argument that Asaph uses here. Verses 1 through 8 is the instruction section. Then we're going to jump right into verse 9. And I want you to notice what verse 9 says. It says, The Ephraimites, who were one of the tribes of Israel, one of the tribes of Jacob, okay, says the Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that he had shown them. Would you categorize that as a good generation? Absolutely not. Keep reading. In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. You guys remember that story? All right. In the daytime he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and he gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Look at all these things that God is doing for them. Look at how he's blessing them. Look at, look at how even when they sin, even when their attitude is, is not good, God is doing these things. But notice what he says, verse 17. Yet, I mean, yet... Even with these things, they sinned still more against Him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. God's doing all these incredible things, and yet, what happens to that generation? They're still turning against God. And then again, God provides for them. He, he feeds them. He nourishes them. He protects them. In verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite of his wonders, they did not believe. 
And then go down, well, verse 36. It says, they, they flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues. In other words, they had a pretense of following him, but that's not what they were doing. Remember what I say? They had all the religiousness. They could say the right things. They knew things about God, but they didn't believe it. They didn't want to follow it. Verse 56 kind of picks up all these things after God continues to bless them. Verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. And then verse 65, again, after pouring out judgment on them, verse 65 says this, Then the Lord awoke from his sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the house of the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. That's interesting because Joseph was kind of like the favored one who had the two children, and the two children are mentioned here, Ephraim and, and uh, uh, well, Joseph and then Ephraim child. No, that's not right. Yeah. But he chose not the one tribe that you would think, but he chose Judah. And ultimately he chooses David. Now, it's a whole other subject, but God blesses when he chooses to bless, and he blesses whom he chooses to bless. And that is a, a very important thing for us to understand. But uh, here's this. That this, this whole array that the psalmist gives us is to help the generation that's coming to see that there is an effect when people who claim God as their God but are not willing to walk in his ways, that they will be judged, that there are consequences for their lack of following and lack of faithfulness. So this new generation then is being warned, don't do this. And ultimately then, if that is true, they are very sensitive toward their sin. They're not going to just be rampant with it. They're going to be careful because they don't want to go in that direction at all. This is the product, a sense of confidence in the character of God, a sense of providence in the purposes of God, a sense of obedience or a desire for obedience in the commands of God, and a sensitivity towards sin. Now, just think about it. Isn't, isn't that what you want for your children? Isn't that what you want to see happen in the next generations? These are timeless truths, timeless principles that God is revealing through Asaph for us. Now, there's an important distinction I want you to notice here. Here's what, I'm, uh, here's what I think is important for us to see. As you open up God's Word and you find out passages and sections of Scripture that are all about maybe parenting or influencing the next generation, that one of the words you see over and over and over again is the word teach. In fact, you can go to um, the Shema, right? You can go to um, uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 and verse 4. In fact, we'll look there in just a minute. But notice this one. Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You say, well, what is all that about? Interesting, in the New American, it says, one generation shall praise your works to another. And here's the distinction I want to make. The distinction here has to do with, first of all, this whole idea of teaching the truth. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following. Um, 
Again, as we think about the next generation, this is just one of those passages that naturally comes to mind. Pick it up at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in, in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And, you know, and the implication then of that is we want the word of God just to be saturated in our house. We just want it everywhere, right? So whether we're sitting down watching TV, we're, we're bringing in, hey, what does God's word have to say about this? But here's, here's my concern, is that we can allow ourselves to think that all I need to do is to teach, is to catechize, is to have the, the, the kids memorize, and almost as if this is an academic endeavor. All right? Now, this, this is the kind of stuff that happens, and you probably know people, maybe you are one of them, this is part of your history. You know, you went to Sunday school, and you learned a lot of truth about God. Maybe you, um, you went to confession, and you, you went through that whole process in, in whatever religious institution you were in, but you had to learn certain things to get there. Um, maybe you went through catechism class, so you learned certain truths, and I'm not, I'm not opposed, obviously, to Sunday school and through catechizing as, as means by which we can teach our children, but we can do all that and have the, our, our kids' minds filled with truth about God, but it means nothing to them because it's simply factual information about who God is. So what I think is necessary for us then, based on uh, this, this Psalm 145, is this. Just taking teaching, because we are instructed to teach, right? But there's a, there's a nuance here I think is helpful. One generation shall commend or praise your works to another. In other words, it's not just enough to teach. There's also an attitude, and there's something else going on here that's important for us to see. And I'm calling this praising the God of the truth. That is your testimony. You see, it's not just what, uh, that you know God's word, or even that you believe that it is true. What matters is that you have an intimate relationship with the God who breathed out his word. In other words, this word of God is not simply a book, right? This is God's breathed out word. So the reason I'm studying this, the reason I'm reading it, the reason it's all over the place is because there is a God behind this who breathed it out. And what I want to do is that this should be the vehicle through which I understand him more. This should be the vehicle through which I am actually more intimately um, related to him. So, since you have an intimate relationship with him, the idea here then is that he, that is God, would be the fuel behind your obedience to his word. You're not just obedient because the Word of God says it. You're obedient because God says it and reveals it in His Word. It's God that is the issue. And I want my relationship with God to be such that I am, I am joyful. I'm praising Him with the things I know about Him. And so the next generation needs to know that we're living our lives according to God's Word, but and in full assurance of God's Word. 
So the next generation doesn't want to look back and say, not only did they know God's truth and believe it, well, no, this is what they do want to say. They look back, they know God's word, they believe it, but it was the very air they breathed. It was the anchor that directed them to the sufficient and sovereign God who gives joy in their lives. It was the wisdom that shaped their decisions and their love for serving Him. They saw that the reason you made a decision in your life, the reason you moved in a certain direction is because it was God's will. Because you recognize that God allowed this for His purpose and for His glory. That, that God was in this, whether it was a good circumstance, whether it was a bad circumstance. The, the generation, the new generation can look back at those who are shaping them and say, listen, it's just not that they had facts about who God is and was and what he did. It's that those facts fashioned and shaped these people so that they live passionately for God, with his truth, with joy, praising him no matter what the situation. Totally different scenario than simply... Stuffing a child's head with truth. Now, am I about, you know, allowing the word of God to be in the heart of my children? Is that what I want? Absolutely. Is that what we want to see happen in, in the context of church? Absolutely. But not in a cold, mechanical, academic way. We want the next generation to be fashioned and shaped by truth, but to also to be caught by our embrace and love for God who has revealed that truth to us and who fashions how we think and believe and the decisions that we make. So when you commend God's works to another, you are passionate and rejoicing over the implications of who God is and what he has done. So, it is incredibly important that we realize so much of how we teach the next generation is going to be through our example of faithfully following him through life with joy. Okay? God's calling us to impact the next generation. Now, I could have given you a lot of tricks, a lot of mechanical things, you might want to say more relevant application, but you got to get the, the swoop of what God is saying here. He's saying, I am what the next generation needs. And you get that by making sure that my character is revealed, that my, my statutes, my law, my commandments are also revealed and taught, but those both come together and fashion and shape that next generation. So I want to kind of finish up here with some final implications here, and then after we're done with this, we're going to have a time of discussion to talk about, all right, what are some things then we can do to kind of make sure that we're heading in this direction? But let's think first, first of all about um, a quote that I found John Piper um, made, and uh, let's, let's read it through here. Um, he says, It is the biblical duty of every generation of Christians to see to it that the next generation hears about the mighty acts of God. God does not drop a new Bible from heaven on every generation. That's really important, isn't it? New generation, new truth, got to have it, you know. How are we going to know God? Because, you know, we think, no, he understands all that. He intends that the older generation will teach the newer generation to read and think and trust and obey and rejoice. It's true that God draws near personally to every new generation of believers, but he does so through the biblical truth that they learn from the preceding generations. 
the Spirit comes down vertically, you might say, where the truth of God is imparted horizontally. I, I totally agree with this. So helpful here uh, to be reminded of these truths. And that kind of leads me to something else that we need to make sure that we understand in the context of a church. Okay? A church is a gathering of believers, right? And it's a gathering of families. Okay? Just keep that in mind as we think about these three uh, things. Three convictions. Parents educate their children. In other words, it's the parents' responsibility to educate their children. Would you agree with that? All right? So you come and you're a part of a church, you're saying, we want to be a part of this church because we agree with the, the ways in which this church is going to be shaping us as well as our children, or you might even say as well as our children's children. This is what we want. But understand, as a parent, you are ultimately the one who is responsible for the raising and the, and the training that takes place in your children's lives. Agreed? So the second thing, the church partners with the parents in educating their children. We're agreeing. This is what we want. You guys had a meeting earlier today talking about children's ministry. And you talked about a certain curriculum. There's been some thought gone into why the various choices are there. Because it's theologically accurate. It's very, very careful in making sure that we don't moralize scripture. But we're teaching who God is in that scripture. And all sorts of different things like that that are really important. But we partner together in the... Uh, and the assisting and helping of parents to do that. And the last thing is the church helps equip parents to educate their children. Would you agree with that? So we're training parents, that's the idea, we're training parents to take on their responsibility of raising their children, but we're partnering with them. And that's why it's okay to go to a place and drop your children off into a classroom because you trust that what's being taught in that classroom is consistent with what you value as a parent because of what you see in God's truth. Right? right? Which means that there needs to be communication and we need to make sure we understand what it is we're doing. Another final implication here is this. And I, I just, I love this. This is Jim Elliott from his, his, his journals. Um, he's writing to his parents. At age 22, Jim Elliott had a promising ministry in front of him in the United States. He could have been a preacher, he could have been an evangelist, uh, could have done a, a lot of different things, um, and he would have been very successful. At least that's what, you know, it seemed the direction, the trajectory he was on. But he was very, very excited about a call to go to Quito, Ecuador. Um, and then from there, go to the Quechua uh, Indians in South America. And they, they wrote and told him, uh, his parents wrote and told him that they were not happy about this change. But here's how he answered. All right, we can just read this together. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. He replied on August 8th. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they must be, become so infatuated with the kingdom of following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves that we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice, rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they were as an heritage from the Lord, and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of 
but arrows. And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's hosts. Now I would like to propose to you that our job as parents is to take those arrows in our quiver and one day pull back the bowstrings and let it fly. And I would also suggest using that same analogy that as a church, our, our picture and our vision for those that are part of the next generation should be that when God is ready to, we are taking them out of, might want to say, the quiver of the church and we're letting them fly to do what God has called them to do as far as building the kingdom for his glory. We want to impact the next generation. How do we do that? Making sure that the character of God is revealed and the commandments of God are honored and that we are modeling them, that we are embracing them, that we are living them out and that we're teaching them and showing the next generation why those things are important. Here's also what he said, and this is, this is from a hymn, O Zion Haste, you may know it. Um, it says this, Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. Remember, this world is not our home. We're what? We're just passing through. And that means your children, that means that your children's children, they're here on this earth ultimately to bring glory to God. Not to build their own kingdoms. The world is going to pressure them pull them away from God's purpose for their lives. Our job as a church is to keep the main thing the main thing. And based on God's word, that is relevant in every generation. Oh, there's going to be nuances, there's going to be differences, but it's the same truth that every generation needs, and it needs to be implemented and needs to be a part of what we're doing. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll talk together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity of looking in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the, the wisdom that you give us, Lord, to, to really focus on the simplicity of, Lord, just reveling in your character. As we open up your word, as we see your character on display, help us, Lord, personally, um, to be in awe of it. And, Lord, that it would provide for us, Lord, a confidence and a hope in you. And, Lord, as we see your commandments revealed, Lord, would you give us, Lord, a a desire to recognize that, that when you command, Lord, you have done that uh, to bring honor to your name, but Lord, also for our own protection and for, for our own care. Lord, help us not to make the mistakes that have been made in, in years past, but Lord, help us as we seek to impact this next generation, Lord, to do so um, skillfully, but practically and, and effectively because we are following your truth, not some... Uh, new man-made idea that simply is going to somehow, you know, just rattle the next generation. Lord, help us to make sure that, that what is true about you and what you say is the, the kernel that the next generation needs. Because, Lord, we want to see them trusting you. We want to see them, Lord, confident in you. We want to see them recognizing your hand of sovereignty in their lives and, and your providence, Lord, being seen as, as a means by which you are accomplishing your purposes. Lord, we, we want to see them being obedient and, and seeking to be obedient to your commands. And we want to see them, Lord, shunning sin because they know that, that sin is so 
easily accessible and it's so damaging. Lord, we have, we have a lot of responsibility that you've given us in investing in the next generation. Lord, help us to be wise, to be skillful, but Lord, to do it in your way and for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, we have uh, just a few minutes here. Um, and let's just talk about this a little bit. You notice that uh, 